Now, contrary to what people might think, participation trophies actually started happening in children's sports about a century ago. This is not a new phenomenon. We look at it today and we're like, oh, these kids today and everyone gets a participation trophy. You just show up and you get something. That's not teaching them good things. But they've actually been used for decades to encourage and reward children for participating in healthy and fun activities like sports. They recognize effort, which children can modulate, rather than natural ability and outcomes, which are dependent on many things that children just cannot control. Since the 1990s, though, there have been a growing and persistent drumbeat of eye-rolling and whining about participation trophies being some kind of newfangled parenting idea run amok, making all of our kids soft. Plenty of people with and without any actual expertise or evidence have weighed in with extreme confidence in this belief that participation trophies ruin kids' competitive spirits and make children too lazy and or too entitled to work hard to get things that they want. The thinking often goes, every kid will think they're a winner, so they will always feel entitled to winning, even if they don't deserve to win. This kind of strikes me as silly, though. This is, kind of, this is kind of a ridiculous notion, if you think about it. Does anyone really think that kids mistake a participation trophy for winning first place? Or that kids are fooled into thinking that a participation trophy is a gold medal? Kids are way smarter than that. And way more aware of their social surrounding. Kids know when other kids have more skill on the court or the ball field. A participation trophy just says it was awesome for you to be here and have some fun. It doesn't say everyone wins first place. But recent evidence has shown that participation trophies are protective of children's mental health by giving them soft places to land in the rocky terrain that is childhood. Kids deserve kindness and grace from adults in their lives. They deserve to know that they have inherent value and worth no matter what they achieve or produce. And this perspective keeps children's physical and mental well-being front and center right from the start, which couldn't be more critical if we're going to halt and reverse the devastating mental health crisis gripping our children. These trophies are a drop in the bucket, but they represent so much more. You know, we shape our identities and our sense of worth by constantly comparing and contrasting ourselves with others. This is what social media is so good at, that we get to judge our behind the scenes by someone else's highlight reel. We don't post bad things and bad news to social media, only the good things. And then when we're having a bad day, we look at someone else's really great day that's happening. We want fairness and equality when it serves our interest, but not if it means that we all get the same prize in the end. Where is the reward in that? Jesus dealt with this same exact thing. He dealt with this same idea of fairness and competition and entitlement. 
We think that our little fox of entitlement is a new term, but Jesus was teaching on this to his disciples. And I want to read to you the parable from Matthew 20 that helps us look at the lens of Jesus' kingdom, the lens of how things can be different in the kingdom of God and how the disciples were beating themselves up in comparison. It says this, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for the standard wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When it was about nine o'clock in the morning, he went out again and saw others standing around in the marketplace without work. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. And when he went out again about noon and three o'clock that afternoon, he did the same thing. And about five o'clock that afternoon, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why are you standing here all day without work? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go and work in the vineyard too. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give them the pay starting with the last hired until the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each received a full day's pay. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each one also received the standard wage. When they received it, they began to complain against the landowner, saying, now these last fellows worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who bore the hardship and burning heat of the day. And the landowner replied to one of them, friend, I am not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me to work for the standard wage? Take what is yours and go. I want to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. Am I not permitted to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the first will be last. And the, so the last will be first and the first last. The life of a day laborer in the ancient world was difficult by any estimation. Unemployment was a continual problem. Many slaves actually had an easier life because their owners had a financial investment that required protection and adequate care. But day laborers, those standing around the agora, the marketplace, they, it involved no such investment, and they could be hired for short periods and overworked or even abused. And we think of a slave when we read about servants and slaves in the New Testament, we think, man, how could they have slavery back then? But this is a contract. This is an employee who works. Day laborers have no such guarantee. They were even below the slaves of the day. The opening scene in the parable is typical of Jesus' parable and consistent with ancient farming. The owner of the vineyard goes out to hire day laborers. Hiring for such work would be done early in the morning, and the owner and laborers agree on a denarius, one day's wage for the average worker. It's often described as a day's wage, although it's difficult to determine the precise value of a denarius in such a scenario. 
Now, there's nothing in the parable to suggest that the agreement was unfair to either party. You work a day for me, I'll pay you a day's wage. That is a fair exchange. However, the value of a denarius at the time in Palestine would be would place these workers among the very poor. A denarius a day might support one person, but not a family at the level of minimal survival. So these people were working for below minimum wage today. They couldn't support a family. They would only be able to support themselves. So it was likely that they could not start families, or if they had a family, that everyone in the family would have to go out and work as a day laborer. And by all accounts, day laborers lived hard and often short lives. The owner returns to the marketplace later in the morning and in mid-afternoon discovers unemployed laborers and promises to pay them what is right or what is just. Now, this is unusual. We can agree that this is unusual. We expect the owner to hire the necessary laborers in the morning. The feel of the parable is that he hires these laborers later in the day, not because he needs them, but simply because they are there. They're hanging around. They've got nothing to do. Let me give you something to do. There is no agreement on a denarius, but only upon what is just. The laborers at this point become vulnerable. They don't have a contract now. They don't have a verbal agreement. What I will give you, I feel, is right for your work. They become vulnerable to the generosity or even the lack of generosity of the owner. And then the next scene further increases the strangeness of the story. The owner returns to the Agora almost at the end of daylight and encounters more idle laborers. What are you doing here? Why aren't you working? You need work to live. The owner simply tells them to go in the vineyard without any promise of wages. Go and do some work for me. The unusual behavior of the owner, the lack of agreement on a wage, and the timing of the event really places our focus on these 11th hour laborers. That's where that term comes from, the 11th hour. And we're told nothing about them, about why they are idle. We're simply told that they are hired with only one hour left of daylight. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was the day of a worker. The parable then somewhat awkwardly stages a payment sequence in order to intensify questions of justice and grace. The manager pays wages beginning with the last and finishing with the first. If you are a modern-day manager, there's no way you get away with this. In today's labor laws, with contracts, you would run people out the door. This is not fair work. Each of the three receives a denarius. And those hired first are watching. They assume that the owner is going to be fair. And so what does fair mean to us? It means they expect more than those hired at the very end. Well, that guy that worked one hour got a full day's wage. What's coming to me? What do I feel entitled to? And when they too receive a denarius, they raise the question of justice. But I think, really, that their complaint is fair. I think it's fair. I think it's 
fair for them to stand there in front of a man who hired them and say, hey, wait a second here. I know the contract that you hired me under was one denarius. But that's been skewed just a little bit. It doesn't seem fair anymore. The contract that we originally had doesn't seem to be holding up anymore. Hard-working, good people have always asked what kind of God would offer the same reward to those who have earned it and to those who have not? The key in interpreting this parable is in verse 10. Those hired first thought they would receive more. It's a funny thing about expectations, isn't it? It's a funny thing about those unassumed things of the heart where we can be in contract with someone else. We can be in relationship with someone else. We can want someone to do something for us and we thought that we would receive what we had in our hearts that we would receive. And it's not there. This is why Christmas is about family and not about presents because we have to say something that makes us feel better. We open our gifts and we say, well, I didn't get exactly what I wanted, right? What a major disappointment Christmas has been. At least it's about family, right? That softens the hurt in my heart that you guys didn't get me a new PlayStation this year. The parable breaks any chain of logic connecting reward and work and human perceptions of what is right. What is right now? I don't know. Because this is certainly not how we would act in this story. This is not how we would act if we have the power to give. This is certainly not how we would act if we owned the vineyard, if we had the kingdom. God's judging is not regulated by human perceptions of justice and lurking behind that statement is a whole theology of mercy. The parable is not, an, not attempting to say anything about human effort in salvation. Rather, just as no one should begrudge a good man who goes beyond justice and gives to the poor, so no one should begrudge God's goodness and mercy as if God's rewards were limited to just numbers on a page. Inherit in this assumption that God's judgment will be contrary to human expectations. Inherent as well is that entitlement, the envy, the displeasure at someone else's success. That's contrary to kingdom thoughts and kingdom living. Jealousy and all thoughts of ranking or privilege must be thrown out. And so what we learn from this parable is that the landowner begins by giving everyone in the story work. You don't have something to do? Come and work for me. Just standing around, minding your business? Come on in. I've got lots of things to do for you. Each of the laborers is unemployed, and each is given work to do with the promise of pay. They all begin the same situation but easily forget by the end of the day where they started. Remember you were standing alone in the marketplace, wondering, looking, sizing up everyone around you. I wonder if I'm going to work today. I wonder if I'm going to eat today. You had 
nothing. And someone came and offered you work. They offered you a place in the vineyard. And here you are. Their energy goes not to the fact that they have work and are being paid, but to the inequality they see. Imagine if we, as people, as humans on this earth, put the same amount of energy into our work for the kingdom, our work for the church as we did into our work in comparisons and pointing out unfairnesses in life. Entitlement becomes more important than what they have received. Are you envious because I'm generous? Do you feel like I'm not generous enough to you? Asks the landowner. Now at the same time, the parable also exposes something about us. It exposes something about us humans that we would really not like to be shown. It painfully unmasks the deep presuppositions that all too often form the air we breathe and shape our lives to such an extent that we cannot even imagine the alternatives. It exposes the fundamental metaphors that so often structure social relations, winning and losing, superior and inferior, insider, outsider, honored, shamed. It unmasks and culture that often encourages us to pray, give me this day my daily bread, rather than give us this day our daily bread. Now the point here isn't necessarily that other people receive blessings from God that we don't. And I don't even think it's that they get more or better or lovelier gifts from God. The problem is that they get the same as us, right? And they don't deserve it, do they? They're less worthy, those late arrivals. Or how about this? They're just plain worse sinners than we are. How could a just and merciful God give to them? what he gave to me. They don't deserve the same as we get. Not nothing, not nothing, but certainly not the same. Humans then and now are continually comparing themselves with others, trying to assess fairness and level of accomplishment, which is exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing. The only fact that causes the first hired workers to complain is the comparison of their wage with that of the hired later. As with most humans, justice is in their eyes that which gives no one else, not even the poor, an advantage. Let me say that again. Justice is in their eyes that which gives no one else, not even the poor, an advantage. Justice is always defined from a self-centered perspective. Entitlement is always about me first. It's always based on my definition of what's fair and equitable and merciful and generous. How easily, can we, how easily we can relate to the grumbling of the laborers 
who assumed that because they went into the vineyard early in the day, they would be paid more. Such dangerous assumptions can be in our closest relationships, within our work settings, within our congregations, even within our national thinking. Their complaint does not simply concern money. It goes much deeper to what money represents. The real issue is superiority. You have made them equal to us. That's the complaint. The complaint is not you gave them something. It is you made them equal. Work becomes not simply the means for earning daily bread, but a source of division and competition, a means of reinforcing the categories of winners and losers, superior and inferior. And what do we do in our jobs? What do we do in our workplaces? I just want to get ahead. I just want to work a little bit more. But yet, Nancy was promoted ahead of me. And I know that I work more. I know that I work harder. I know that I show up on time. And what has she done that I haven't? So what exactly do we feel entitled to? Here's what I think it is. We think God's power to forgive and bless and hand out mercy and God's control over who is forgiven, it should belong to us. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of our complaint. Man, they are, they are 10 times worse sinner than me. Do you know that I read my Bible every day and I pray to God all the time, continually in prayer, and I give money to the church, and, and I do all these great things for God, and they go out on the weekends, and they get drunk, and they, they don't pray, they don't go to church, and yet God forgives them. Here I am, I've been burnt up in the sun. I've been working hard for the church for so long. And God's given them more. It seems like God has given them more blessings than he's given me. You're not immune to it as a pastor or a church planter. Because here we are, coming up on a year and a half in this endeavor. And there are church plants that have planted after us that already have buildings, that already have more people. And we look and we say, what is wrong, God? Have I not been working hard enough? Have I not been praying hard enough for you? Why do they get the buildings? Why do they get all the people? Why do they get all the fun in ministry? I've been here grinding, and yet I don't have anything to show for it. Well, God wants to remind me of this story, of this parable. He wants to remind me that you once were someone standing in the middle of the marketplace. You didn't have anything. So why not try and be grateful for the opportunity you've been given? Why not understand a little bit more about where you've come from rather than try and look at what other people have received? Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. I have different plans for them than I have for you. This parable is perfectly matched to our first reading of Jonah. 
who has run away to avoid delivering the message of forgiveness that God has sent him to proclaim. But Jonah complains. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. And surely this cannot be for them. I knew you were a good God, so I didn't go and talk to them because I think Nineveh should be punished. Okay? So I have a better idea of what they deserve than you do, God. Jonah's so funny, isn't he? But he's exactly like us. It is ironic, though, that Jonah, who had earlier declared that deliverance belongs to the Lord, and then he rejects the good news of who God is for other people. And this parable is not unlike the parable of the prodigal son, one that we know really well and we like to celebrate and say, oh, God is such a grateful God. He's so gracious to bring us back. Look, he was in the mud with the pigs and now he's throwing us a big feast. Except we're not that person, are we? In the prodigal son, we're the other son. The elder son in the story is so upset that the younger brother who has squandered his inheritance is welcomed home with a blatant lavishness by his father. It's not fair. It is not fair that the elder son who stayed home and did what he was supposed to do does not get his just reward. No, it's not fair. And that's exactly what many people will hear when they hear this parable. How unjust of the landowner not to give those who labored all day in the hot sun their just reward. How unfair of the landowner to treat each of the laborers equally despite the disproportionate hours they worked. How unfair, but by whose standard? God doesn't care about your definition of justice. He doesn't care about what you feel entitled to. Are you envious because I'm generous? Are you mad at me because I give and give and give over what is required of me and required of you? See, this parable, we can cut everything out around it. But Jesus is telling us what the kingdom of God looks like. That this parable is essentially about the generosity of God. It's not about equity or proper distribution of wages, but about a gracious and undeserved gift. You know what the word grace means in Greek? It means gift. It's not about an economic exchange, but rather about bestowing of grace and mercy to all, no matter what time they have put in or how deserving or undeserving we may think them to be. God's generosity often and always <clears throat> violates our own sense of right and wrong, our sense of how things would be if we ran the world. Let me tell you what, we wouldn't have these problems if I was in charge. Whew. I would not like to see the problems that would crop up if I was in charge. We might solve some of them, but we would have a whole host of other things. Are we unable to celebrate another's good fortune because we have not celebrated our own? How often am I, <clears throat> am I ungrateful for God's graciousness and mercy? How often do I deny God's love and forgiveness in my own life? I'm undeserving of it, so others are undeserving of it. But wait, 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 God. When I want forgiveness, I will take it. Just don't give it to them. 
because they need to jump through a few more hoops. I need, I need to know that they're really, 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 really sorry. You know I'm sorry, God. You know, you know in my heart. But I know they're not. And so for this to be true, the workers must recognize the opportunity to work in the vineyard as a gift in itself. There is no room for human pride since one's only choice is either to answer the call to work in God's kingdom or to stand idle and waste your life altogether. God does not will that anyone's life should be wasted. So God extends the invitation indiscriminately and repeatedly. That's why he goes to the marketplace so often. That's why he sends us. That's why there are so many churches for so many people. Because we get to go to the marketplace time and time again and we say, why are you standing there? Don't you want to come and work? There's so much work to be done. What are you doing just standing around looking at everyone? God shows no partiality among persons. All are equal and they're all deserving of an opportunity to work. So the reward for all for all workers is equal as well. Reward comes not from each worker's individual merit, not from the quantity or even the quality of their labor, but rather from the gracious covenant offered by the one doing the hiring. One more thing for us to think about. In his book, The Prodigal God, the best-selling author and late great pastor Tim Keller offers the following story to illustrate our self-centered entitlement. He writes, Once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, man, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came back before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said thank you and took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Those who serve God only because they wish to avoid punishment or obtain payment do so in the manner of that nobleman. I'll serve God as long as I get the good reward at the end. I'll serve God as long as it's a fair, a fair shake for me. 
Whereas those who see working in God's vineyard as a gift without a gift of labor without coercion, and the manner of offspring who love and wish to please the parent and are dedicated to the parent's work. Those workers who feel they deserve better must be reminded of the master's generosity and letting them all work at all. But here's the advantage in that. The advantage is that God's people are ideally those who work in God's vineyard because it's a good thing to do rather than because they hope to earn merit. And this element of the parable is taken up in other gospels and in Revelation. This scandalous reversal of expectation, of our sense of judgment, and even our hopes is the central piece of the New Testament. Whoever wants to be first must be last, a servant of all. Mark 9, 3, 5. So much for human ideas of greatness. Who is worthy to climb the holy hill and enter the gate of God's kingdom? Some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last, Luke 13, 30. And it is Jesus who is first and last, Revelation 1, 17. The alpha and omega, the first letter and the last letter. Not because he encompasses all things, but because he shows us that there is equity in all things. For in the one who is both first and last, the first and last are brought together when we are called to lay down the burdens of our day and find our home with God. The parable focuses on the goodness of the owner and the complaint, the entitlement of those who thought they should get more for their work. God's treatment of his people, his judgment is not based on human reckoning and human standards of justice. Jesus leaves us with one question, though. Can we learn to see through the eyes of God? Our ideas of right and wrong, of what is just and unjust, are not necessarily God's ideas. And that is a very good thing for us. We're reminded by this parable that the tables are turned. When we look for equity, we are surprised to find generosity. You and I are invited and challenged to look at where we see ourselves in this parable. This parable reminds us that God is a lousy bookkeeper and invites us to transform our pride, our entitlement, our envy, our covetousness, our hardness of heart into joy by admiring and celebrating God's astounding generosity. The parable calls on us to look at ourselves honestly and lovingly as God looks at us. It invites us to turn from holding grudges because things did not go our way, to let go of the stuff of our lives that keeps us from being joy-filled and grateful people. One of the sayings we hear nowadays is, just get over it. Get over it. There is wisdom in that. Work through things and then let them go. As long as we hold on, we continue to hurt others and ourselves. God forgives us and loves us, and so we must forgive and love ourselves and others. Gratefulness is at the heart of our faith. 